Welcome to The Outcast, the podcast giving a voice to anyone who's ever felt like an outsider or an outcast with healing and open conversation and welcoming guests to help us have those conversations. I'm looking forward to this two-part episode on body image and eating disorders starting this week with licensed and board certified psychologist, author, and speaker, Matt Zimmerman. Matt, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Matt, you know, we've had a lot of healthcare experts on this show from various backgrounds and different specialties. What got you interested in this line of work from the beginning? Yeah, um, actually, I became interested in, in college. I actually had two close friends who were struggling with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I had really encountered it. And what I was able to see is one of them um, went to inpatient treatment and then after that outpatient and the other didn't really pursue it very much. And I saw what a stark difference that made um, in how their lives ended up playing out. And I just got very interested in how I could help uh, with people who are struggling with eating issues and body image concerns. The Outcast podcast is supported by Richmond to DC HelpWanted.com. Most folks who work here love living here, and that makes a difference. At Richmond to DC HelpWanted.com, they're proud to work the hometown advantage around the clock, connecting local employers to local job seekers. Richmond to DC HelpWanted.com makes it easy to post a job, and it's local, so you won't get spammed by faraway job seekers. And if you're looking for a good local job, search jobs and apply online right now. Get the advantage of finding a job close to home at Richmond to DC HelpWanted.com. Local jobs that work. I'm so interested in your background. You have such uh, a wide spectrum of of things involved. You were co-founder of the Center for Personal Growth in Fort Lauderdale, and and now you're doing uh, telepsychology, which I think is so important. Explain what that is. I I think this is such a a great breakthrough in mental health care. Yeah, I think the technology has allowed for telepsychology to emerge, and states are looking at passing regulations to make it safe, um, and to keep the standards high. So mm-hmm. telepsychology, it can be on the phone, but um, the way I'm doing it is through encrypted um, and secure private video. Uh, so it's face-to-face. We're just not sitting in a room together. And it's traditional psychotherapy. It's just through this encrypted video. Um, and seeing a wide range of problems. Eating disorders and body image concerns is my main subspecialty, but like most psychologists, I'm a generalist practitioner. I'm also very interested in your book, Matt, called uh, Choosing a Psychotherapist, a Guide to Navigating the Mental Health Maze. I'm, I mean, I'm sure that you agree uh, now more than ever educating people on how to find the right therapist and how to open themselves up to that process is so, so important now. Absolutely. The book's been around for a while. I, I co-wrote it with a graduate school a roommate of mine, actually, Donna Volpe-Strauss. And really what we were seeing out there was a lot of books on how to find a therapist that were way too long, way too technical. And really the book is designed, it's, it's based on the premise that good therapy starts with a good fit. And so the book takes you through what kinds of practitioners do therapy, what are the different kinds of therapy, how do you interview a prospective therapist, and then a lot of resources. So I'm pretty passionate about that idea of helping people find a good fit so that they can have a positive and therapeutic experience. Um, so I do a lot of consultation on how to help people find a, 
a good fit for their therapist. Yeah, I'm thinking so much, Matt, about, you know, the therapist that I've seen over the years and and how important that good fit really, really is. And and I you know, it's so important that I think now a lot of young people get discouraged if if they don't find the right therapist at first and maybe they don't want to go back to therapy. And then that ends their process with therapy when they, you know, really need to be seeing someone and leaning into that. It's really a, a process about about getting the right fit. And I encourage young people now, you know, don't give up on that. You, you do have to go through a little bit of a process to find the right person for what's going on in your life right now. Yeah, Dee, that's such a good point because it really needs to be a consumer-based approach. And so what I encourage is that people spend a little bit of time on the phone with a therapist, which the therapist wants to do as well, 15, 20 minutes, because we know that good therapy with a good outcome is really based on the therapy relationship and likability. And so that's highly relevant. And of course, a first meeting is going to be a little bit uncomfortable because of the newness of the situation. But really, I think it's really important to not go into a first meeting or a first phone call with this is going to be my therapist. And more so, let's see if this is going to work well for me. Yeah, I, I'm just really excited about reading your book. And I would encourage parents especially to, to check out the book. You can get it on Amazon at Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Choosing a Psychotherapist, A Guide to Navigating uh, the Mental Health Maze. I, I just, I can already tell it is just packed with some great, great information. So we are, uh, we're, we're going to be talking uh, for the next two episodes to Matt about some some uh, very deep things, and, and I really want to get into uh, some of this discussion on this two-part episode. We want to focus on body image and eating disorders. Now, Matt, you've had a lot of experience, I mean, over 20 years working with people who are struggling in this area. I'm curious about what you've seen over the years. Do these struggles commonly happen more in young people as opposed to adults, or do we just hear more about young people going through this? Uh, no, it actually is much more common in in young people. So, and you see differences depending on what kind of eating disorder the person's struggling with. So, if we're talking about anorexia nervosa, and we can certainly get into what that looks like compared to bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder, but anorexia nervosa has an earlier onset generally usually between the ages of 14 and 18, whereas bulimia nervosa has a more common onset between 18 and 22. So you see that emerge more in college, where anorexia you're more likely to see either late in high school or early in college. It's very interesting because that's already such a fragile time. So you're, you're really yeah. dealing with like multi-layers of change going on in someone's body. Absolutely, and there's so many factors that contribute to the development of an eating disorder. But certainly the higher stress of the transitions into high school and college the stress of being away from home for the first time, Mm -hmm. the stress of navigating the social dynamics, uh, all contribute to the development of eating disorders. How do you start the process, Matt, when someone comes to you for the first time with a possible eating disorder? I mean, I know know, you're looking at different types and, and, and trying to figure that out. What does the very beginning look like? Yeah, and again, it's really different depending on what kind of issue there is. And of course, the person's personality Um, You know, with anorexia, almost by definition, the person usually doesn't identify it as problematic. Mm -hmm. 
So the first time I sit down with someone who's struggling with anorexia nervosa, it's quite possible that they're there because someone has exerted leverage on them. Right. Like a teacher or a parent or a friend group. And usually they're not particularly happy to be there. And so the work really begins with developing genuine trust and a genuine relationship. And that takes time. Um, more commonly, if someone's coming in with bulimia nervosa, they're pretty unhappy with their own behavior. They're usually grossed out by it, frankly, and they want it to change. And so that starting point is quite different. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. You were talking about, especially um, when you're dealing with someone who is struggling with like anorexia and how much time that trust process at the beginning uh, might take. You know, this can be something I think that maybe sometimes parents can get kind of caught up in a, a little bit of a trap if they're concerned about their child, where they think that this is going to be a quick fix. You know, going going to the therapist and this new therapist this is going to be we're going to get this handled like you know in two visits. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point, Dee, and it really is a longer-term process, particularly with anorexia nervosa, because the underpinnings of it are quite important and meaningful to the person. It's why they're holding on to restricting their diet. You know, most people who have anorexia know on, on some level that they're doing something that puts their life at risk, but at another level feel as though that's necessary for some sort of emotional survival. And I know that sounds really paradoxical, but when you get into the psychology of someone who's struggling with anorexia nervosa, you do almost always learn that they're attempting to survive emotionally in some way, and that's different from person to person, but that for some reason is more important than the physical consequences of it. And so that's the work, is helping the person understand the meaning and purpose of their symptoms for them so that they are then empowered to make different choices if they want to. And in my experience, people almost always make different choices once they're aware of what purposes their symptoms were attempting to serve. Wow, that's a really great description of that of that uh, beginning process, especially. We're talking to uh, Matt Zimmerman, uh, licensed and board-certified psychologist, author, speaker, and we're having a two-part episode and talking about so many uh, so many things around body image and eating disorders. And I, I noticed uh, one thing, Matt, that you say you consider an eating disorder to be a relationally-based problem. What do you mean by that? Yeah, and sometimes it sounds foreign uh, to folks early on in the therapy process. Might might sound a little foreign to some of the listeners, but basically the emergence of an eating disorder, in my view, is an attempt to serve relational functions. And that may be different from person to person. But, for example, if there have been severe trust ruptures in that person's life, either because of trauma, uh, either because of really complicated family dynamics, then what may happen is they may separate part of themselves out into what sometimes we call an eating disordered self and a healthy self. And then it's almost like an imagined relationship between those two selves. And you'll hear language like that in therapy, like my eating disorder is the only thing that I can trust. My eating disorder is my best friend. Mm. Um, and it almost sounds like a partner. Uh, and so part of the work is helping to understand what those relational functions are so that the person can think about, do I want to try this outside of my symptoms out in the world with other people? 
And part of the therapy is giving them a trusting, real, and genuine experience so that they can feel what that's like. So you almost have to, what it sounds like to me, is is start to separate that relationship as they've made sort of this disorder into kind of a figure, a person, a, a relationship. You sort of have to separate that into into reality and maybe form a new relationship? Yeah, exactly. And often that starts with the therapy relationship because there's rules in therapy that make that safer. Mm-hmm. Like... I'm not allowed to go anywhere. I'm not allowed to bring my own needs into it. And so it's actually a simpler relationship. It's a unidirectional relationship, albeit real. I tell my clients, if you want to know what I'm thinking, just ask me and I'll tell you. Right. Um, But that's the beginning process is let's just connect in a real way, in a way where you can trust that what I am saying is true what i'm thinking is transparent yeah that's super important and and i can only imagine how uh how how you can see that importance come to life as you're as you're in that beginning process with someone who's uh who's talking to you about their body image issues and um and eating disorder possibilities and where they are on that spectrum really good stuff matt zimmerman is my guest and we're talking about uh, body image concerns and eating disorders and you've mentioned a couple of these matt but let's get into this a little bit more um because there are so many different types within what you're seeing. I mean, you talk about binge eating and uh, bulimia and anorexia. Tell us some of the differences so that we can sort of break this down and know, okay, I might have a concern for uh, a young person that I think is going through this, but I don't know exactly what it is. Sure. So uh, the short of it is anorexia nervosa is really typified by Uh, a person restricting their diet pretty extremely, um, being about 15% under what we would consider their ideal body weight, and they're being distorted body image, meaning they don't see themselves as thin, and often they actually see themselves as overweight when other people are seeing them as quite thin. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are a whole bunch of medical consequences to that as well. Um, With bulimia nervosa, uh, it's typified by binge purge episodes, um, usually two times a week or more. Sometimes people are binging and purging several times a day. Um, And there, the body image, the way it's described often is there's undue influence um, of body image on one's overall self-esteem, but it might not be distorted in the way that someone who has anorexia nervosa um, struggles with that. Mm-hmm. And then with binge eating disorder, it looks very much like bulimia nervosa, but without the purging episodes. And purging is really, um, there's many different forms. The one most people are aware of is self-induced vomiting, but there's other forms of purging as well, like using laxatives or diuretics, uh, which is quite dangerous, actually. Or sometimes people are purging through compulsive exercise. Um, So that's a form of compensating 
for a binge episode as well in bulimia nervosa. I'm thinking, Matt, about some of the uh, some of the parents that I know who have been deeply concerned uh, with a child who is struggling with something like this. But uh, the range of where they are has been so different. Like one child, you know, showing some signs of, of serious body image issues that they really only had evidence of, you know, from the way that the child talked about their body and the way they looked and the way they thought that they looked in certain clothes. And then the other child who uh, needed like a much more intensive kind of therapy like an inpatient type of therapy finding where maybe this young person is on the spectrum that can really be daunting that is really really hard particularly for parents because you know in normal adolescent development the the teenager is really sharing less information with parents right. or information with friends and so friends actually might know more about this than parents, and that can be really scary and really frustrating. Um, and what makes it even more complicated is we live in a culture, and when I say culture, I mean the entire country, really. We live in a culture where, you know, up to 60% of adolescent women uh, struggle with disordered eating. That doesn't mean an eating disorder. It means maybe some of those symptoms, either undue influence of their body image on their self-esteem or maybe occasional binging or occasional purging or restricting their diet intentionally to look differently. So it's really difficult to make those distinctions. And what I would really recommend if a parent is concerned is um, find a professional who has experience in this area and see if an assessment is possible. Um, and, you know, that can be a really tricky conversation for a parent to have with yeah, a teenage, sure. teenager. Absolutely. And, and, you know, how do you suggest the parents start that conversation? Because, you know, I, I'm already I'm already seeing parents going, wait, what? This is going to be tough. Um, but, you know, you want to and these are scary conversations and they're hard conversations and they're uncomfortable and you want to have them and you need to have them. But a lot of times you don't know where to start with, with your own child because you're scared of how it's going to go. Yeah, well, first and foremost, being honest and direct. Um, and that's the advice that I give to parents when I'm, when I'm having that conversation about how to talk to their teenager about this. I certainly have had clients who sat down in my office and, and told me that their parents told them they were going somewhere other than the therapy office. Mm. And that made the therapy very difficult and really delayed uh, the change process that needed to happen. But I think a person's best, a parent's best bet is really to express the concern with details about what they're observing and frame it as stress. So often what I recommend is something like, you seem really stressed with all that you have going on in your life and it seems to be taking a toll on you, both mentally and physically. I've noticed that you don't seem to be eating as much. You seem particularly concerned about how your body looks lately. And I know that's not a comfortable thing for us to talk about, but I think it'd be really valuable to sit down with someone who knows more about this than I do and just see if there's an issue that needs to be addressed. I love the way that you framed that. That is, it seems like a really safe way to kind of uh, use that word stress. That's a, that's a nice safe way to sort of enter the conversation with someone who very likely could be uh, really on edge about this. 
Yeah, and I, and I think what parents should know is there's no guarantee that that's going to go well. You might be a drop in the bucket as a parent. You may be one of seven or eight people in um, their teenager's life who's expressing concern about this. So often it's the cumulative effect of, oh, I have three friends who've talked to me about this. My parents have talked to me about this. My phys ed teacher has talked to me about this. Maybe I should do this. Or maybe the teenager goes begrudgingly just to get the parents off their back. And that's okay because specialists in this area, like me, really we we know how to receive that message of I'm only here because my parents are forcing me to be here right? and really work with that to start beginning a real relationship. Yeah, that that is a really, really good point. And, and you know, when we're talking about, uh, you know, this family conversation that you might be having, I would imagine, Matt, that you probably want to avoid sitting down in some sort of intervention type style because I, I you know, I, I feel like the the young person is going to sense that coming from a mile away and feel pretty threatened. I think that's right, Dee, and and they'll dig their heels in pretty pretty deeply. And the thing to keep in mind is, if they're engaged in these kinds of behaviors, in, in their mind, it is a survival strategy. It is a primary coping strategy. So what you're actually doing when you suggest, hey, meet with a professional you are actually threatening their primary coping strategy. Right. And so that's why it often doesn't go particularly well. And when I sit down with a first time with a client, I make it very clear, I'm not here to take away your symptoms. I'm here to engage you in a conversation about what those symptoms are for so that you're in a better place to make choices about what you want to do. But it is it is going to raise defensiveness usually when that conversation happens. We're talking to Matt Zimmerman, and this is a uh, two-part episode. I hope that you'll uh, come back for the second part as we talk about body image concerns and eating disorders. And Matt has a lot of experience in this area, board certified, licensed, psychologist, author, speaker. We were talking about his book a few minutes ago, Choosing a Psychotherapist, a Guide to Navigating the Mental Health Maze. And I encourage you to check out the book, especially if you have a young person who is trying to get into therapy, who should get into therapy and really navigate that whole process of therapy. Uh, Matt has some really great information in the book that will like, likely uh, help you out very much in that process. So Matt, you know, uh, we're going to get a, a deeper into a lot of these things coming up in the next episode. But I want to talk a little bit about, because we've sort of centered some of this beginning of this discussion on family, how much how much are how much is the family involved when you start to this process with therapy with a young person is it sort of does it become family therapy at some point is there is there a little more involvement with the with the family because it can't just be obviously with the young person as it is a family a family thing a family dynamic yeah that's a great question it really depends on the age of the person and where they are developmentally so If you have a 15-year-old who is beginning that process of separating and individuating from their family, which is a healthy and appropriate thing to do, then I might meet with them individually, but they're going to know that 
you know, some certain basic information might be shared with the parents, but also sometimes we can consider an eating disorder as a family problem. And so often there's a lot of family consultation that I'll do with the parents. For example, if the parents, because of their own very understandable anxiety, end up in the role of being the food police, that tends to be counterproductive. And then if I can do some um, consultation to help the parents uh, relax that a little bit and let the, let the treatment providers handle more of that, it tends to make things better in the family as well as help the therapeutic process in therapy. If, this, if the person is older, if the client's older, 18, 19, then we're really talking probably about more separation and individuation processes around becoming their own individual and making their own choices, including around their health. And, and even at that age, I mean, when you're talking about the older, older young people, you know, 18, 19, like you mentioned, I mean, it's also important for them to be uh, navigating their own health care, too. So this is this is something for them to try to get committed to and try to get involved in uh, firsthand and not maybe so much leaning back on the parents. Yeah, and that's a process. And often you see a dynamic in which a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old may be overly reliant on their parents. And it's hard to know where the chicken is and where the egg is with that. Right. Are they over-reliant on their parents because they've struggled with eating issues for so long that the parents are worried about their kid's survival, frankly, and are more involved um, with their kid than someone who isn't struggling in that way? Or has that kind of dynamic contributed to the client not having a sense of autonomy and independence that somehow relates to their eating disordered symptoms and their need to sort of seize control over their body? Wow, really good stuff, Matt. Uh, Matt's going to be with us for another episode on this topic, body image concerns and eating disorders. So we hope that you'll come back for that. Matt, I know you're located in beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Tell everybody how they can get in touch with you and find out more about what you're doing. Yeah, there's a few ways. Uh, I have a website, drmattzimmerman.com. And folks can always go there and read about how I do my therapy and my teletherapy and contact me through that or directly through uh, my Gmail account at uh, zimconsult at gmail.com, Z-I-M-M consult at gmail.com. Excellent, Matt. We're looking forward to the next episode, and we're going to dive deeper into this conversation, and we can't wait for it. Matt Zimmerman coming up again on the next episode of The Outcast. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, thank you. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by the host and guests on this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of Centennial Broadcasting.